Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, uh, by the time you air this, we we'll already have had our Dispatch Live event, so I'm not going to plug that, except to say, uh, through the, the 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 miracles of and magic of uh, prescience, prophecy, and time travel, I can tell you we had a great time last night on the Dispatch Live podcast uh, video event, um, and really missed that you couldn't be there. Um, all right, so uh, uh, for reasons that need no explanation, but I'll explain them anyway, we have um, uh, coming back my, my friend and colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, who is the head of the economics department to the shock and dismay of millions. And uh, no one would ever take one look at this guy and say, give that guy a management position. But uh, um, such as it is, and he is the author of um, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It. Um, it's a great book. It should maybe get a new subtitle of uh, American Dream is Not Dead, uh, But the Pandemic Did Kill It. But we'll talk about that and some other things. Uh, Michael Strain, welcome back. It. it or is killing it, yeah. Um, or, or you could do a sort of Princess Bride thing and say... The American dream is only mostly dead, right? And then you're like Miracle Max and you know how to bring it back. There are gradations. Um, so uh, uh, not since John Podoritz wrote Can She Be Stopped about Hillary Clinton in 2008 has a really excellent, well-timed, I mean, a really excellent, well-thought-out book been more, uh, well, I should say Jonathan Chait's book about Barack Obama's legacy, which depended entirely on Hillary Clinton getting reelected yeah, yeah. took an awful beating as well. But uh, you came out with this book, which I thought was extremely persuasive prior to the pandemic. And it's not your fault. You couldn't have predicted the pandemic. You uh, don't know where that. I've been working in that lab in China. That's true. And we should call it the China virus that did it, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, how, so what do you remind, we had you on for the book. People should go back and listen to it. But remind readers of your basic thesis about why the American dream wasn't dead as of January and, um, and how does the pandemic, how's the pandemic change the equation? You know, I don't, I don't think the, the, the pandemic really changes the equation that much. I mean, what I, what I try to do in the book is I try to look over the kind of longer sweep of uh, recent American history and look at how typical workers and typical households are faring. And so I go back uh, 30 years. I go back to 1990 um, for, uh, you know, a, a kind of longer term look at how wages are doing, how incomes are doing, what's happening in the middle of the labor market, what's happening with upper mobility, things of this nature. And uh, I, you know, conclude that if you look over that longer stretch, what you see is a, a story of, of significant uh, progress. You see uh, a story of wages rising for typical workers, incomes going up, upward mobility uh, being being you know the right way to characterize what's happening for the vast majority of of, of Americans and, and of American families. You know all this happened during during periods where we had recessions. Um, so you know in the book, I'm very clear that 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 the story is a story of economic success, but it's not a story of uninterrupted economic success. Uh, you know, I, I I look at the period, you know, 1990 to 2020, the Great Recession and the financial crisis of 2008 are included in that period. And 
a period of extreme hardship, of, 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 of extreme economic loss. So the, 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 the story from, from the book you know, actually, I think, becomes more salient given the pandemic, which is that American workers and American households are able to overcome these setbacks and, they're, and they are able to overcome these, these challenges. You know, we had 10% unemployment during the Great Recession. Uh, we had two recessions uh, before that that are also included in the in the longer term statistics that I look at. Even given those serious challenges, the story over the last thirty years is a story of economic success and a story of economic progress for uh, for typical workers and for typical households. There's really no reason to believe that if the Great Recession or if previous recessions weren't able to to change that story from a story of success to a story of failure that this pandemic will. You know, I think I think the message from the from the book and 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 the analysis that I that I document in the book should make people hopeful that yes, this is a period of really serious challenge. It's a period of a lot of suffering for millions and millions of people. It's a massive setback for people's economic outcomes. Uh, but also that that the historical record suggests that that people will get back on their feet. And and continue the uh, upward march of of economic progress that really that really characterizes on balance uh, the story of the last several decades. Um. So, you know, I give you a lot of grief, and um, but I should, in fairness, say, I don't give you nearly the grief I give to our colleague Jim Pethokoukis. Well, he he deserves um, much more of it. Yeah, no, it's it's sort of apples and oranges. Um, and he's a fan um, of Lost. Indeed, he is um, fan of Lost through the final season, which yeah. is sort of indefensible to me. Through the final um, episode, even so, that, that yeah, no, I mean your view of his judgments on on any topic. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of similarities with Elvis Presley, but one that would be really foremost is if I had had a gun during the final episode of Lost, I would have shot. <laughs> um, but okay, but you know, uh, to to uh, Jimmy P's credit. Uh, He's taken the pandemic really seriously from day one, almost in a Howard Hughes Kleenex boxes on his feet kind of way, but he's taking it really seriously. And, um, and you know, I had him on in the early days of the pandemic where we wasn't sure what the economic response from the government was going to be. And his basic attitude at the time was, if we need to be helicopter bends and just chuck money out of helicopters, that's fine. I don't care if it's going to be messy and all the rest. Um, because there's a real danger of a truly catastrophic economic uh, downturn if we didn't act quickly. Um, so first of all, looking back now, how well, how, how do you grade our response to the economic hit of the pandemic? And uh, without too much in terms of recriminations, because that's, this is one of these areas where I kind of give leaders a pass on when the rule, you know, the house is on fire, Oh, don't use the good China to help put out the fire. You know, I, mean, I don't yeah, buy yeah. those kinds of things. But uh, uh, you know, how how would you have wished we had done it differently, and how can we sort of improve it going forward? You know, I think um, I think it's it's a it's an important question. You know, the first thing I would do is separate the the public health response from the economic policy response, and and, right. and public health response was bad. I'm just going to put bad. it out there, yeah, you know, yeah. and we can argue about what was bad about it later. You know, but yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um, but the 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 economic policy response, I think, was actually very very good. Uh, you know, there were there were missteps to be sure. Um, it was it was the right decision to make unemployment insurance benefits more generous. It was the wrong decision to make them as generous as as Congress did. Um, uh, you know, so so you know, certainly if you look at the details of the policy response, there were, there were, there were some missteps. We should have given money to state and local governments uh, in the um, $1.8 trillion CARES Act that was passed in March that they could use for schools and, and more general uses. We didn't do that, right? So, so the, the, the $1.8 trillion uh, uh, big, big bill that, 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 that passed in March and that really has um, been you know, by far the main tool that, that the government has used uh, on the economic front it wasn't perfect, but it was really good. Um, it got it got the basic structure right. You know, uh, 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 expand uh, unemployment insurance to um, to to support consumer spending, 
support um, small businesses in the services sector that are going to be losing a ton of revenue so that you don't have you know, a, a cascade of, bank, of wasteful bankruptcies, uh, offer uh, financing to larger businesses, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the checks to households was a, was not super helpful, but, but was, but was a fine, was a fine thing to do. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, those kind of big, big block pieces of it, I think were right. Um, you know, where, where the government stumbled was not in the design of the law, but in its execution. So the, the Treasury Department uh, really made some of these programs much less effective than they should have been. So, for example, of the, of the uh, uh, you know, one what, what of the biggest parts of the, of the law that passed in March to support the economy uh, was $454 billion, so you know, nearly half a trillion dollars, uh, given to the Treasury Department to support Federal Reserve lending programs to large and mid-sized businesses. Hardly any of that money has been put to use. Hardly any loans have been made from that program. And the reason is because the uh, terms that the Treasury Department is insisting that businesses take in order to, to get a loan from those programs just make the loans you know, completely unattractive. So Congress appropriated half a trillion dollars to support the economy. It's just sitting there because the Treasury Department is, is mismanaging the program. The uh, Paycheck Protection Program um, would have been, I think, was I think you know has been successful. It would have been much more successful than it was uh, if the Treasury Department had followed the intent of the law and made it easier for banks to issue these uh, Paycheck Protection Program loans. Made you know had not had uh, a lot of uncertainty on the part of small businesses about whether they would be audited. You know uh, things of this nature. So uh, the I think the worst part of the government's response has been the execution of these programs by by the Trump administration. The, but but I think the actual design of the law was was uh, was quite good. You know overall um, the size of the package I think was also was also roughly roughly right. And, and what Congress was able to do at, at the kind of macroeconomic level was fill in the revenue hole. You know businesses are losing a ton of revenue, households are losing a ton of income. And Congress was able to, to plug that, um, you know, in some ways, you know, kind of ham-fistedly, in a, you know, like with UI benefits and other ways, smarter, like with, like with PPP. But this, the fact that that revenue hole was plugged for the economy as a whole allowed a really aggressive rebound uh, of consumer spending in May and June uh, and a really uh, a rapid decline in the unemployment rate. Uh, because households had had money and businesses were able to stay open, and 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 so you know the economy recovered a lot in May and June. A lot of what it lost in May and June, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of what it lost in March and April was recovered quickly in May and June uh, because because of the of the law. So I, I know this is a weird question, um, unusual. Yeah, but. Uh, sp- Repeat these words: person, woman, man, camera, TV. The best part was the way that he he dwelled on camera. <laughs> um, you know, when when they give the Montreal cognitive assessment test to uh, Coco, the sign language gorilla, he gets it right every time. But he just says banana, banana, banana. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, no. So this is a weird question. Um, uh, it feels like when I, I've driven, for bizarre reasons, I've driven around vast swaths of America during the pandemic. Um, I've driven to North Carolina. I've driven to Tennessee. Um, I've driven through a big chunk of Alaska. You've been uh, trying to my, find hydroxychloroquine. Pretty much, yeah. Um, actually, I'm just trying to stay one step ahead of the, the new federal police. But uh, uh, and my, my wife and daughter have driven even more. They spent some time out in Utah and um, and drove back, and I'm gonna do more of that kind of travel soon. And so when I drive around, I see traffic, which is a good ins- indicator of, of economic activity. You know, the traffic is increasing. It's not anywhere near normal, but it's much better than it was, you know, eight weeks ago. Um, 
In DC, street parking is harder and harder to do. When for a while, you could almost like just leave the car in a lane, and no one would care because it was it was zombie apocalypse stuff. But um, I look in the office buildings. I'm in an office built dispatch offices downtown, and I look in all the office buildings. There, I'm looking through the windows. They're all empty. People aren't working there. AI has been closed for uh, God knows how long. Um, I talk to my friends. They're all working from home. Who's going back? Who's actually going back to work and who isn't? I mean, are all the factories still going? I mean, where, 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 is, where are the people who are still staying home? Is it, is it mostly ju- just waiters and, you know, who? I, I, I'm not articulating it well, but. Yeah, so the, the biggest job losses um, that we saw were in the sectors that, that featured a lot of in-person uh, interaction. You know, so there were big job losses in retail. There were big job losses in 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 restaurants. Yeah, but I, I just want to be, I, I I I understand who's not going to work in terms of who lost their jobs. But those, I'm talking about like those who is going the, to work, right? Because yeah, we, we don't yeah. we still the majority of the American workforce is still working. Yeah, yeah, for but sure. I don't That's see any. Important. You drive around the restaurants; they're all closed. Or they're just they're on skeleton crews. Same thing with a, a lot of the department stores. What parts of the economy are just functioning as if they all, as if almost nothing happened? Well, I, I mean, I think very few are functioning as if nothing happened. But those, but the the largest job gains we've seen. So the recession is over. Let's just start there, right? That's, that sounds weird to say, but you know, I think we're gonna. I think the way that this is going to be documented, you know, in terms of the official uh, uh, record, is that the recession ended in, in May, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, so that's when the economy started adding jobs again, um, and uh, and when and when consumer spending started increasing again, et cetera, et cetera. And so, if you look at the industries that added the most jobs, those were the same industries that shed the most jobs in March and April. The 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 biggest employment gains were in retail, were in uh, uh, restaurants, leisure and hospitality, things of those things, things of those nature. Also, construction, uh, because um, because the summer construction season was 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 heating up around the time that. That the economy uh, hit bottom and started the started the climb out of the hole. And a lot of kinds of construction. I mean, you see a lot of road work out there. Sure. Um, that's actually safer for pandemic reasons than a lot of other kind of work. It's outside. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy to socially distance when you have a jackhammer. You know that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the um, the employment group that's actually doing the worst right now are uh, state and local government employees. Uh, state and local governments have shed 1.5 million jobs since February. Uh, that includes 900,000 jobs in, uh, among education workers. So, you know, at a time when we need schools to reopen, at a time when schools need to be hiring more people in order to, to, to handle this situation, uh, plunging revenue at the state and local level, plunging tax revenue is, is actually forcing uh, nearly a million uh, educators to, to, have, to have been laid off at this point. So that's if you're, if, you're, if you're looking to see where, you know, where are we still bleeding? As of the last official employment report, we were, we were, we were you know, basically uh, recovering in all industries uh, or in all major industries, except for state and local government employment. How about the lawyers? Um, I have a couple of lawyer great. friends who've taken, well, no, I have, I have a lawyer friend who's a partner at a firm and, and he's taken it in the neck. Because yeah. like all the, all the clients that they have, they're like, look, <laughs> We're just going to hold off on this kind of stuff for a little while, sure. and, that's, and, and that's going to be true for a lot of professional services. You know, lawyers, consultants, you know, those the, those types of of occupations where, uh, you know, if if you're a business and you have some, you know, you, you need to have surplus cash in order to in order to hire. You know, you're not going to hire McKinsey unless you unless you have some money to do that, for example. And so, you know, professional services firms are are, I think, event planners are truly. Event planners, you know, the, the, the concert venue industry is heavily lobbying Congress right now for a, for a concert venue bailout in, in, in the bill that, that's currently being, being discussed. Dentists, I think, are in terrible shape right now. You know, nobody wants to go to the dentist. Um, so, you know, there are these, there are the, there are a lot of occupations and, and, and they're not just low wage. I mean, you know, low wage workers have, have for sure borne the brunt of this, but you can go all the way up to you know six-figure occupations like dentistry or, or or you know professional services, things of that nature, where where you really are you know seeing a, a you're not seeing a recovery. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. It kind of reminds me a little bit, and I don't, I don't mean funny in a funny sense, but um, when you read about the when you read about the Great Depression in the 1930s in the U.S., you either get this picture of absolute economic devastation, of you know, uh, you know, itinerant families living you know on handouts and long you know soup lines and all that kind of stuff. But you also get, like, the 1930s Hollywood movies where everyone's in great suits, guys and dolls, blah, 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 and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And it turns out both existed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if you still had a job after the big shocks of the early Great Depression, you were actually in pretty good shape because wages were, you know, wages were, rel- or I should say prices were very low, labor was cheap, you could do a yeah. lot of things. And there are a lot of people who lived very well in the 1930s. It was that disconnect. It was the inequality that hit people really hard. You get the sense, I mean, like boat paraders for Trump. Or if you go to, um, you know, I spent some time in Florida, you know, around Jacksonville. I mean, lots of people are doing, behaving fine. And then other people are just really, really in, in sorry shape. And it kind of does show you that the economy is this weirdly layered thing and not Mm-hmm. All one or it's not all the pieces aren't perfectly interlocked, despite how we talk about the miracle of, you know, interdependence of our free market system and whatnot. Yeah. And people are experiencing very different things right now. You know, if you're a um, if you're a, a, a retailer that, you know, sells home improvement type goods, I think I think odds are you're doing you're doing really well right now, you know, because people are spending all this time at home and 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 they're. You know, they want to go, you know, resaw the lawn or, you know, touch up the, you know, the paint or whatever. This is obviously not something I do in my own life or I would I would <laughs> I wouldn't be reaching so hard for her. <laughs> you know, they caulk, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, the uh, the the home delivery industry is, is booming right now. Um, but, so, but is it because I mean, I keep reading pieces about how like. DoorDash and Uber Eats can't figure out a way to make this thing work even. Yeah. So some, I mean, some of the individual apps I think are having trouble, but, um, but uh, you know, Amazon is, 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 for example, doing, doing really, really well. And I assume UPS has got to be through the roof, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Um, And so this is, you know, so, but, but this is, this is how the economy will heal. Right. It's really instructive for, for Congress when they're thinking about the response, you know, what, what is needed is for, industries to shrink and for other industries to grow. Um, we should not bail out the concert venue industry. If people aren't going to go to concerts for two years, then that industry needs to shrink. Uh, if, if, if people are going to you know, buy a bunch of stuff you know, to be delivered to their home, uh, uh, then that industry needs to grow. If you're a restaurant and you've discovered that you can make a lot of money on takeout orders and you didn't realize you had that capability, um, and, you know, and so what you need to do is expand the kitchen and shrink the 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 seated um, uh, the number of seats you offer, and that means you need fewer waitresses. You know, whatever. You know, and, and you can be profitable at eighty percent of the number of workers you had in February. That restaurant needs to shrink um, in order in order in order to return to profitability. And then the twenty percent of workers that you laid off need to go get a job. Uh, you know, working you know at a distribution center or 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 or, or, or whoever is hiring, you know, once that process of adjustment takes place, we will be will be a healthy economy again. We'll have low unemployment. We'll have stable prices. We'll see wages starting to grow again, or you know, wages among among all workers starting to grow again. Um, and and we'll be we'll be back off to the races. So, you know, so, I mean, t- 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 explain to me how you work. You think through that. I mean, I, I generally am inclined to agree with you um, on all of it. But, um, you know, the arguments in the beginning was for the various kind of PPP bailouts and all the rest, um, or whatever they were called, the argument in the beginning was, look, this is not normal creative destruction. This is an exogenous event. The, the, even the founding fathers believed that there was a role for the government, for the general welfare, for these kinds of things. Um and so it's, there's there's no moral hazard in bailing out small businesses. Um, it, this is this is you know basically a, what was it Larry Summers who said we're putting the economy into a medically induced coma to so that we can bring it back out. Um, 
what is the is the argument for why music venues shouldn't get a bailout now? Just really, just the timing sucks for you because we're out of that phase, or is there something more to it? Yeah, so I guess a couple of things. Um, you know, uh, the um, the goal of the economic policy response to this crisis should have been twofold. One, to avoid really significant human suffering. Uh, and, you know, that's why you, you need a social safety net to, to catch a lot of people. And, and, you know, there's, you know, even, even given the economic crisis, we don't want to see, you know, widespread hunger and, and these sorts of things, right? So you, so you really want to, to alleviate uh, uh, real suffering. And then the second goal should be to preserve the productive capacity of the economy. Uh, you know, you're not going to avoid losses. And I think this is often confused. You know, well, workers are losing money. We should give them money. You know, businesses are losing money. We should give them money. The goal is not to mitigate losses. Uh, there, there are going to be losses. You're, you're not going to be able to avoid losses. The question is who's going to incur those losses, right? So this is why it doesn't make sense to bail out big companies, right? Because what you're doing when you bail out a big company is you are saying that taxpayers should bear the loss instead of shareholders. I think shareholders should be at the front of the line to bear that loss. Um, uh, you know, and, and the reason you're giving money to the pizza parlor uh, is because there are no shareholders to bear the loss. So the first, the first, you know, the, the, the first line is the business itself. The second line is the taxpayer. Why not let the business itself bear the loss? Because that is, that is wasteful uh, from an economic perspective. Right, that business was profitable and productive in February. This pandemic rolls around uh, and, and and forces it to shut down. There's every reason to think that once the pandemic is in the rearview mirror, it will be profitable and productive again. And if you if you allow it to go bankrupt, you are losing all of the knowledge that existed inside that business. Uh, you're losing all the relationships that had built up. You know the kind of secret sauce of how how a business can be productive and how it can grow and hire workers. You know relationships with vendors, relationships with customers, knowing the preferences of the people in the neighborhood. You know that that sort of stuff. And All actually, literally the secret sauce for the pizza. I mean, you can't literally the secret sauce for the pizza. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and so you don't want to lose that. And so and so that's why you you try and keep that business afloat. Um, uh, uh, you know that will allow the economy to recover faster. That will be that will accrue to the to the benefit of everybody in 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 society if we don't have to to, to rebuild all of that all of that capital. Um, now, you know, so that so that explains the kind of you know logic of you know let's just freeze the economy on you know as it was on February fifteenth and 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 you know and then you know you know hit the turn the light switch on in you know whatever and and and, and kind of go back to the way things were. That that analogy was always too simple because there was always going to be the need for the kind of uh, 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 reallocation that I that I discussed earlier, right? Even if even if the pandemic had really only been a ten week event, you know, if we had had a successful six week lockdown that actually worked, where the uh, caseload growth had slowed to a crawl. Um, and where it just wasn't really an issue anymore, uh, where the virus wasn't really an issue anymore, which was the original goal, people still weren't going to go to concerts and concert venues were still going to suffer. People were still going to rely on Amazon more. So, you know, there was still going to be a need for some industries to shrink and other industries to expand. Uh, but I think I think what, every, what, what a lot of people at least thought was that, you know, we could get 95% of the way back to normal if the lockdown worked, if the virus was crushed, and then and then the kind of freeze the economy, unfreeze the economy analogy makes sense. And then it takes, you know, a couple of years for that remaining 5%, or at least until we get a vaccine, for that remaining 5% of the economy to heal. As it happens, the lockdowns didn't work. And this is no, you know, this is no longer a 15-week problem. This is a 15-month problem. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the kind of basic you know, two-part structure, I think, still exists, right? There's going to be, you know, freeze the economy, then unfreeze it, and a lot of economic activity and normal life will go back to normal pretty quickly. 
And then phase two will be, you know, industry shrinking, firms shrinking, others expanding, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that, that you know, given that the lockdown didn't work, that second phase is going to be a lot longer, a lot more painful uh, than, than we had thought. And that first phase is going gonna, is gonna, to, you know, alleviate hardship a lot less than we had thought, if that makes sense. I think it makes sense. Um, so what... What perm, permanent is the wrong word because once we get jetpacks, everything changes. But um, what sort of for conversational purposes, things will never be the same kind of changes do you see happening with the economy? Are, you know, in particular, it seems to me that there's just you can, you can stage the collapse and you can contain it to certain sectors, but Higher ed seems like it's gonna there. So, like you know, when you inject oxygen into your bloodstream, you know it it can cause a heart attack. It just seems like there's a bubble in the veins of the higher ed system, and it's gonna hit at some point. What you know? Do what? I know people in the retail, not in the retail, in the in the office. You know, the business, real estate business. um, Eventually, those losses from rent are gonna have profound changes. Uh, what sectors of the industry do you think are just not going to look the same as post-pandemic as they did pre-pandemic? So I actually think, I actually think very few. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's probably not the common, the common view. So take it, take it for what it's worth. But, you know, my, um, you know, my, you know, my expectation. So, you know, progress toward a vaccine seems to be going very well. Um, and, and, and that will obviously, you know, have a salutary effect. You know, if we can, if we can get a vaccine, you know, in, in the first six months of 2021, let's say, uh, you know, take that as the base case, you know, in, 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 in that case, you know, my expectation is that we will see a, a good number of kind of marginal changes, you know, so, you know, it was, it was very common for, you know, somebody to, you know, spend, you know, five hours in an airplane, you know, and, and, you know, nine hours traveling, you know, to, to go to one meeting in an office across the country and then spend the night in a hotel and then get up and, and do it again. I mean, I did a, a bunch of that, right. You know, where you, you know, you, you know, Monday is a travel day, you wake up Tuesday morning and you give a speech or a lecture and then the rest of Tuesday is a travel day, you know, that, that, that you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, my guess is there'll be less of that, uh, but you know, business travel and conferences, I don't think are going to go away by any stretch. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I think it could be a while before before concert, you know, before big concerts, uh, 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 you know, kind of uh, come back. But you know, I think people will still go to clubs, and and you know, you, you know, you put you know seventy five people in a in a in a bar or something, and you know, to listen to some music. I think that sort of thing could could still happen. You know, it could be you know, you know movie theaters could be. Could be could be gone. I mean, you know, you know, people. But you know, movie theaters were were on the way out anyway uh, before before this happened. Uh, you know, I think people will, you know, work from home marginally more. You know, if you know uh, a, a kind of white collar professional, you know, would normally work from home three days a month. Maybe that'll ratchet up to four days a month. Maybe it'll ratchet up to five days a month. You know, if there's a day where I can be really productive at home, but I have two meetings. Uh, and so, you know, in the before times I would drive to the office, you know, maybe I just say, Hey, can we do those two meetings on zoom? You know, and I stay home that day or something like that. But, you know, I don't think people are going to stop working in offices. I mean, there are real advantages to, to gathering people who, who, who work in, in the same physical space that, you know, those, those advantages were present in February. They're not going to, not be present whenever whenever we get a vaccine again. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I I actually I think there are going to be more changes than you probably you do. But again, it's all guesswork. Um, <clears throat> and look, the disappearance of the movie theater, if it truly goes away, is for American culture is a big deal. You know, sure. um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, my my daughter will cry herself to sleep many a night if there are no more movie theaters. Um, uh, but the one place where I'm, I'm sort of counter, I'm, I'm sort of uh, unconventional, is 
on this point about offices and meetings. I'm with you on it in the, insofar as I think, <clears throat> and it may be a short-lived thing just as a sort of, yay, we're free kind of thing, but let's say there's a vaccine by the f late fall. I think so many people are so freaking sick of Zoom and Google Chat and Skype that uh, there is going to be this overreaction, sort of like mm -hmm. just how everybody just poured out to the bars the second they had the opportunity to. Yeah. Like, I normally, it's like, I was always on the fence. Do I need really need to go into the office today? Do I not need to go to the office today? Because I've been sort of working by remote in one way or another for 20 years. I want to go to the office real bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, people, are, I, people are sick of their houses. You yeah. Know? I mean, and spouses know. are sick of each other. Not not my loving wife and I, but I hear rumors <laughs> about other people. <laughs> that in some houses somewhere. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I hear I, shouting from the neighbors. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think that's right. You know, we, uh, you know, my wife doesn't want to stay in hotels or or, or 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 fly anywhere, so we haven't really been able to to go anywhere. But we rented and we rented an Airbnb an hour's drive away from our house for four or five days just to get out of our house, and it was wonderful. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, you know, so, so so I think that's right. But 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 I also think you know a bunch of marginal changes can impact the economy. You know, I mean if if business travel uh, is basically the same as it used to be, but you know people take five or ten percent fewer trips per year, that's going to have a big impact on hotels. It's going to have a big impact on conference venues. It's going to have a big impact on airlines. Um, if uh, uh, you know if um, if telework if, if companies that are a hundred percent virtual. Uh, you know, if there are five or ten percent more companies that do that than uh, than were in February, that has a big impact on commercial real estate markets in New York and Washington and in and, and San Francisco. So, you know, these you know there will be there will be changes for sure. Um, it, it, uh, uh, but you know, will my life or your life or, or the lives of of, of uh, most listeners you know look basically the same as it did in February? Sure, I think so. Uh, you know, maybe you don't go to movies and and, and and the movie theater and that sort of thing. But you know, in terms of in terms of what life is like, I mean, I do think I do think higher ed is an interesting question, um, and I think a lot of that will depend on on just kind of how uh, you know colleges perform this fall. I mean, I think that's that's going to be a real test, and I think I think there's a big unknown there. Um, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, you know. I mean, I think Harvard and, and Yale are still going to be. They'll be fine. The, the, they'll be the same. I think. I think uh, you know George Washington University and the University of Virginia are going to be are going to be fine. Uh, you know, so you have to you have to you know for profit colleges maybe maybe in worse shape. Um, uh, and um, you know some you know you know some colleges that you know what's going to be interesting to me is how this affects the political economy of colleges, right? So. You, know, you had you had uh, uh, some governors like Scott Walker and, and and others that kind of put colleges in their sights, you know. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see if uh, if if state universities are under pressure by political leaders to change the way they do business or 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 things of that nature as as a consequence of this. I mean, that's that's I think an interesting an interesting story. Too. Yeah, I mean, so also, I mean. Uh, you were probably depressingly young during the uh, the aftermath of 9-11. But, you know, it occurs to me, people, people who, particularly just people who weren't in Washington or New York at the time, uh, tend to forget that a lot of the post-9-11 stuff that really sort of changed government and changed the <coughs> politics of the time, weren't because of the 9-11 attacks. It was because of the anthrax attacks. The, the anthrax, it was the anthrax stuff that had more to do with the formation of DHS. Because there was a very long time where people thought that the anthrax attacks were from the same people who did 9-11 or some other radical offshoot of up with people or whatever. And that, um, uh, caused deep panic in in Washington in the in the sort of the bowels of the policymaking world. <coughs> and it seems to me, just as that's sort of forgotten, 
the growing hostility with China, um, which is in part exacerbated because of the virus and obviously the election stuff and all the rest, um, you could see that, say, 10 or 15 years from now, when you're writing the history of what happened to the uh, to higher ed as a result of the pandemic, the, the real story may be that we stopped taking cash-paying Chinese students, you know, who are a big source of revenue for some schools, and not just Chinese, but foreign students generally. And it really wasn't because of the pandemic. It was sort of a knock-on effect or a parallel track effect of the pandemic. But I think that the, the era of anti-China hawkery is going to get really intense in the years to come. And the pandemic is only a minor contributor to it, but it, it could be a catalytic one. Yeah, I think that I think that I think that could be right. I mean, I, you know, my my understanding uh, is that we'd actually already seen a substantial decrease in the number of uh, students from China who were coming to study in the United States, you know, and there has been some real decoupling, um, uh, and, um, and 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 so that you know that 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 certainly could could accelerate this. I mean, you know, I think China in large part, but not just China. You know, attitudes toward China in large part, but not just attitudes toward China, are reflected in the whole debate about globalization. Have we globalized too much? Is there too much free trade? How valuable is free trade? All that stuff. You know, but if you look at, at kind of peak globalization, it was actually like ten years ago. We've been, we've been on a we've been on a downhill slide for for a decade now um, in terms of in terms of the kind of volume of, of of international trade. You know, will this accelerate that or not? I mean, I think a lot of that will depend on. Who wins the election, and, and on and on, kind of the politics surrounding it. But you know, uh, Joe Biden is certainly taking uh, and uh, a kind of populist, economic nationalist um, tone in the campaign. Uh, that that big speech he gave last week uh, outside Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, really sounded a lot like a Donald Trump, you know, right wing populism, economic nationalism speech in many parts. Um, and, you know, it's unclear to me kind of which Joe Biden will show up in the Oval Office at the end of January. Uh, you know, will it be the Joe Biden who was a TPP supporter um, uh, and who, you know, was you know generally a kind of center left, um, a, a, you know, OK with free trade Democrat? Um, or will it be, you know, an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump type figure? But um, if uh, if it's the latter, then then we could continue to see um, uh, setbacks on that front. So that brings two things to mind. You know, um, one of the other things that is sort of happening, co-terminus, parallel, at the same time, just grab your thesaurus, find out whatever word you want. Um, concurrently. Is this, concurrently, I like it. Uh, there's this raging uh, debate, mostly in the egghead sphere, um, and then a parallel one in the uh, the asosphere, um, which we don't need to talk about, um, about how we're sort of beyond capitalism, we're beyond classical liberalism, that the yeah, old yeah. conservatism is dead, uh, that we are no longer a people with our heads and our hearts wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And uh, so I want to ask you about that. But I also, with that in mind, want to talk to you about donors' trust. Giving USA recently reported that Americans increased their charitable giving last year. Are you among the millions of Americans wanting to grow your charitable impact, but recognizing that your time is limited? With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you spend less time on administration and more time having an impact for your principles and values. A donor-advised fund is like your own charitable savings account. With a fund, you can manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, and private. Donors Trust is unique. Working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that make America great. Donors Trust philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join their community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash dingo for there are six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. 
We thank our friends at Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So, uh, as I was saying before the ad, um, you know, there is this crack-up going on. The long-predicted crack-up of the right, I think, is legitimately happening now. Um, and uh, it's not as terrifying as, as the prophets of old told us it would be. Um, there's some fun to it. But um, it seems to me that the, one of the disadvantages that people like you and I, you and me, have in all of this is when we're debating with um, sort of the new nationalists, the new corporatists, whatever label. First of all, they got to figure out what their label is, for, for Pete's sake. Um, but uh, just for conversational purposes. Sure. But um, uh, the new skeptics of capitalism, of democratic capitalism, of classical liberalism, Lockean, whatever, um, is that if you defend the free market, that is now making you a libertarian. And while defenders of the free market and libertarians, the Venn diagrams overlap considerably, mm-hmm. there are plenty of things that defenders of the free market are not libertarian about in terms yeah. of social stuff and all the other kind of things. Um, and But what they get to get away with is then saying, that, you know, as I believe it was Tucker Carlson said, that libertarians have been running Washington for the last 30 years. <laughs> which, I know. Every time I bring it up to libertarians, they're like, wait, wait, what's that now? Um, <laughs> it were true. Um, um, so where do you where do you see that debate going among your your sort of your guild? Right. I mean, is are the are the true economics types on the right of center and the left of center, are they paying a lot of attention to the sort of uh, Patrick Deneen, Orrin Cass stuff, or is it a source of frustration um, or amusement? How big an issue is it in in your world? I think it's mostly a source of confusion. Um, You know, it's, I mean, I, (laughs) you know, I, uh, you know, five years ago I was accused often by people on the on the political right of being, you know, kind of a big government, uh, uh, liberal, you know, progressive type. I used to shout it at you in the, de- yeah. in the dining room. That's right. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm frequently accused of being a libertarian free market fundamentalist. Um, and that's 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 produced some whiplash. Uh, you know, I I think that um, I think that that that. The outlook for this is 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 confused a lot by what's going to happen with the election, and you know some of these some of these kind of you know new groups and 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 uh, and and some of the you know the 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 strategic choices that individuals uh, in this world have made you know really make a lot more sense when Donald Trump is president. And the question is, you know, does it does it does it really make as much sense if if, if Trump is out of office? And maybe it does. I mean, you know, these these groups and and this work and and this this kind of this kind of you know project could continue for the next two and a half years until the twenty twenty four Republican primary start, and it and it could be a, you know a, a, a you know a, it could be very useful to a Josh Hawley or or or, or to another you know a, or to Donald Trump Jr. the way things are going or Tucker Carlson, um, uh, you know, depending on who runs, if somebody wants to kind of pick up the the torch from President Trump. Uh, you know what it what it actually does in terms of the kind of you know center right you know heavyweight economic policy community I think is is actually you know pretty little because the you know the the, the convincingness of the work that is done uh, in 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 this corner of the political right it's just not very you know it's it, it's not changing minds, right? I mean, nobody nobody reads one of these papers or articles and says, "Oh gosh, yes, I guess I've been wrong about free trade this whole time," or, or uh, you know, things of that nature. Um, oh yes, I guess you know, I guess I've been wrong to support you know a lower corporate tax rate, or 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 oh, I guess private industry. I'm sorry, I guess private equity really is this horrible 
uh, industry. You know, no, you know, nobody, nobody does that. The arguments, the arguments that these economic nationalists or, 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 or Trumpian populists or whatever you want to call them, the arguments that they put forward just aren't well developed. They aren't well supported by evidence. They aren't, they aren't convincing. Um, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot to, there's a lot of debate among the, the kind of center right economics community. And the community isn't a monolith. I mean, there's real debate about significant programs and real debate about, you know, how important, you know, how important is a corporate tax cut, these sorts of things. Um, uh, but, you know, the kind of economic nationalists don't really engage in that debate because, you know, you know the, 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 the work they're doing just isn't compelling enough to really, to really gain, gain an audience. I mean, the, the concern instead is, I think, you know, does this group really affect politics in a way that, that, that will affect policy? Um, you know, can, you know, a bunch of, you know, work about how terrible private equity is that really isn't well supported, that isn't well thought out, um, you know, but, but that does exist, you know, can that, you know, convince Josh Hawley that private equity is bad and, and, and put it in, and, you know, put that in his sights. Um, so, you know, there is a little bit of a, of a reaction to it in terms of, in terms of kind of, you know, uh, uh, trying to support, you know, some, some, you know, long, you know, you know, more longer held views, but, but, you know, there's just not that kind of, there's not intellectual engagement that I think, you, you, you know, you might expect. So, all right. Uh, I know you got to go, but, um, one of the things I'm sure you hear this too, from donor world, from, uh, you know, even Trump, very skeptical Trump people is that we need to reelect Trump because Biden would be so much worse. I, I don't want, I don't want to, we don't need to get into that exact argument. But the reason I bring it up is that <clears throat> one of the things you hear from a lot of people is that the other side is going to bring about socialism, yada, 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 yada. I have no problem saying that a lot of stuff that passes for social justice, economic stuff on the left is really just the Trojan horse for socialism. Um, and they're just trying to come up with a more saleable vocabulary. Um, but your opposite numbers, you know, because I know you globalist, fat cat, economist types, you all hobnob with each other. And, Arithmetic you know, loving. Yeah. What is it? Evan Burke called you people? Sophisters and calculators? Um, and you go... You know, I mean, maybe you have to go to Davos by Zoom this year, but still, you all, ha you know, eat clever cheese and wear belts. And anyway, uh, the sort of democratic versions of you, right? <laughs> um, it's, a it's a very obscure Simpsons <laughs> reference. Um, uh, if the sort of the, the, the like the Jason Furman types and, and all that, right? Uh, the people sort of. Uh, with a D next to their name, but still supportive, basically, of the idea that markets are an important far part of liberal democratic capitalism, yada, yada, yada. How much, you know, so you said there's not much attention being played to the new nationalist, populist people in the economics sphere on the right. On the left, how much of that sort of AOC stuff is being paid attention to by economists of the center left? You know, last night, or two days ago, uh, a co Democratic congresswoman from New York tweeted, cancel rent, cancel mortgage, cancel student debt. Now, as a matter of economics, it's really about as, it's, it's pretty close to as dumb as you can get. I mean, I, there's a crawl space of dumber <laughs> things you could say, but it's not a vast vista of dumber yeah, things, yeah. right? And, um, how much of that stuff is being paid attention to by the the, the sort of the Michael strains of the center? I think probably more, um, but you know, but 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 certainly not, you know, certainly not not all of it. Um, you know, it's um, you know nobody. I don't think any serious left leaning economist thinks that we should no longer have have rent that we should cancel rent, <laughs> um, for example. Uh, you know, but I you know, but there's. There's just a there's there's just more of a friendliness to 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 government intervention, you know the idea that we should do, you know a lot, 
you know, to reduce student debt burdens, the idea that we should do a lot to, you know, help parents, uh, uh, you know, that we should, you know, that we should have a big government program to pay for childcare for parents, you know, uh, the idea that, you know, maybe we should just, you know, move toward Medicare for all, you know, maybe with a public option or something like that. I mean, you know, these sorts of things, I think, I think get a lot more traction. I mean, you know, but, you know, on the, on the right, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of fringy stuff. Um, and that's, that's also true on the left, uh, you know, modern monetary theory and, and, you know, all this, you know, all this, all this, all this kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and, um, you know, I think, I think that, you know, some of it could just, you know, be part of kind of, you know, what happens when you're out of power, you try to get back in power. Um, uh, and so you, you know, bend a little more toward your populist fringy wing in the, in the hope of, of kind of getting everybody together. But, you know, the real question is going to be, what is, you know, what is, you know, how far does, does Biden go in that direction? And, you know, Biden wants a public option, but, but doesn't want to repeal the Affordable Care Act. You know, Biden does want to do a lot to, you know, pay for childcare for people and, 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 and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, you know, so I think it's just, I think they're still kind of trying to figure that out. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it seems like he's trying to chart a middle course between the center left and the, and the more kind of populist nationalist left. Whereas, you know, I think President Obama tried to chart a, a course between the kind of you know center and the center left. <laughs> um, so, since you brought up modern 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 monetary theory, which would be a you could probably do a pretty good Gilbert and Sullivan parody using "I am the very model of a modern monetary theorist." Blah blah blah. blah. Uh, but uh, um, we're not going to get into what all of that is because, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's basically witchcraft, right? I mean, it's it basically is basically saying, witchcraft. That's right. Yeah, uh, if I say debt doesn't matter three times, all of a sudden it <laughs> doesn't matter, right? Um, but lots of people are saying debt doesn't matter to one extent or mm -hmm. another, right? I mean, I I, I, I I look around, I mean, I call this podcast The Remnant, but there's a tinier remnant. I mean, it's just a couple guys huddling. It's like Brian Riedel from the Manhattan <laughs> Institute and a couple friends, you know, like, chained to a radiator, just rocking back and forth, saying, don't hit me again, who are actually bringing up how much more in debt that we're getting. The House Freedom Caucus does not give a rat's ass about it. They are just now hacks on the issue. Um, and does it matter? I mean, like, seriously, I mean, I've been making a big deal out of it most of my career. Yeah, it matters. Uh, uh, it, I mean, what are we going to do about it? it I mean, it, it, it definitely matters. I think it matters. You know, I think I think the question is, do budget deficits matter less today than, you know, they did in the 1980s or 90s? And there, I think the answer is, is yes. Um, uh, you mat matter less economically or politically? Matter less economically. Politically, we know they matter. Yeah, matter less, matter less economically. Uh -huh. And why would they matter less? Uh, interest rates have been trending down for, for several decades. And so just the cost of borrowing is less. Um, you know, a major concern with deficits, of course, is that if the government's in there borrowing a whole bunch of money, uh, that that increases borrowing costs for private businesses and that crowds out uh, and, and that you get less private business investment as a consequence of that. In a world with lower interest rates, that's much less of a concern than it otherwise would be. Um, you know, so there are there are real reasons why we should care less about deficits um, uh, today than, 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 we, than we did a few decades ago, but, but they certainly still matter. They do still crowd out private investment to, to, to some extent, even though it's less than, than, than they used to. Um, you know, and the upward trajectory of the national debt, you know, the, the fact that the national debt continues to grow is, is, is a big problem facing the country. Uh, and it's imperative to put the, the national debt on a on a downward trajectory, not on a, not on an upward trajectory, um, and you know I think that is, you know, a view that's kind of you know increasingly out of fashion. But you know, if you really pressed, uh, you know, center left economists, you know, okay, you know, you know, can we continue to 
have the, the the debt growing at the at the rate it's going growing you know over the next 20 years i think i think you would get you 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 would you would get a lot of them to say no that would be bad um and uh, and 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 i think i think that's the i think that's the right answer all right i mean i we could go on about all of this but um i'll start cutting myself again um uh i do want to give you know but you know we talked about how there's it's an increasingly unpopular position to actually care about debt and deficits and, um, you know, and defenders of the free market are kind of besieged. Um, and as a member of an extremely obscure group, one might even say cult, uh, who believes that Kansas City barbecue sauce is the best barbecue sauce in the country. I want to give you a chance to defend your widely held view. <laughs> no, I, I, so we got to do a little thing about this. On Billions I want to of be people. Clear. The Kansas City barbecue sauce I mostly have in mind is the stuff you can get at a supermarket, which is syrupy, it's sweet, molassesy, um, uh, you know, tangy without actually being acidic. Um, I don't know what kind of gross and, stores you're going to. And prone to cause uh, leprosy <laughs> in most intelligent You need to go on your, on your many drives around the United States. You need to take a little trip to Kansas City. Get yourself some barbecue. Um, I've, I have been to Kansas City more than once. Uh, I actually went to a good Jewish deli in Kansas City. I can't remember which Kansas City it mm. was. but um, There are some good ones. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, are, are, the, um, are the Jews... Uh, disproportionately collected in on the Missouri side or on the Kansas? Side? You know, I don't know. Um, there are there are some uh, some Hasidic communities, uh, and, and you know, if you if you drive around, um, uh, I guess actually both 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 states uh, on both sides of the state line, uh, you'll see you know on Saturday afternoon a lot of you know large groups of people walk into walk into synagogue, um, but I don't know. And they that, it makes sense because in barbecue terms, it's easier for them to go for brisket than say the, the pork ribs. <laughs> yes, I think so. that's right. <laughs> um, but so one of the things that came up in our back and forth was uh, my dis- I have to say my discovery that there are people who claim that there is this substance called Alabama white sauce. Yeah, that that's is real weird, right? A barbecue sauce. Yeah, yeah. and it's not. I mean, they claim it, it is. It, it, I looked up the recipe. I should have looked it up in, you know, in my vast preparation for this podcast. I should have looked up the ingredients again. Mayo. But it, it's basically like potato salad yeah. grease. Yes, it's you know? dis- I mean, it's disgusting. Uh, Imagine putting that on, on, on brisket or bird ends. Or- but I still stand by the fact that Kansas City barbecue is, is sauce is, is over. I have, given, steaks are great. I have given you bottles of Kansas City barbecue. You gave me some a very long time ago when you first came you to AI, and it sat on my desk for a very long time. And you know, I don't think I ended up using you it. You should put I, on your put on your full body plastic bubble. You know, get your oxygen tank and go into the building and get that bottle, and then you'll see how much better it is than than, than whatever you're used to eating. A, a sure sign that it's great barbecue sauce is that it has an infinite shelf life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend, are you watching anything that you're really enjoying? No, I'm not. I have uh, I have young kids, and so every day is a, is a sprint with no leisure. How old are they now? Three and a half and one. Okay, so you're you're less panicked at the prop possibility of schools not reopening, right? I mean, yeah, ours are our our two schools are going to to reopen, um, uh, and uh, and we're we're forming. Uh, multiple backup plans that <laughs> that involve uh, potting with other parents that of course would completely um, destroy the effect of any social distancing orders to close the schools that may that may exist I mean it'd be cool if, if they were a little over, older you could just throw them into the sewers with like a a shovel or some sort of axe and they could grow up to be like supreme warrior. Types. Sure. Or um, we can just pad a room in our house and lock them in it. I mean, that's something that I've thought about. That's what I've been doing with my AI interns. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, throw some throw some food in there twice a day, and you know, let them uh, let them let them find themselves. See, this is why people think that you're a squishy rhino <laughs> throwing food twice a day. Um, all right, my friend Michael Strain. Thank you very much for doing this. The book, by the way, which we talked about earlier, is "The American Dream Is Not Dead." Still available on Amazon and wherever. Excellent books are sold. 
Uh, Mike, thanks for doing this. Thank you, sir. Okay, so uh, Michael Strain has uh, has left the studio, as it were, and I meant to ask him to repeat those words that I asked him at the beginning, um, and uh, but I forgot to do that. So I guess that shows where my uh, my cognitive uh, capacity is at this point. Um, banana, banana, banana. Um, always good to have Michael on. Uh, I we recorded this. Um, on Thursday, we don't know when it's going to air. It could be it could air in, in minutes, um, or it might not. We want to keep everybody guessing, uh, but I wanted to stay away from anything that was sort of too tied to the news because I must confess I am really sick of the news. I am sick of talking about the news. I am sick of watching the news. Um, I am, you know, I, I'm not I'm not quite as dyspeptic as I would be if. I drank puddle water in New Delhi, but uh, I'm just really tired of all of this stuff. And um, and I, what I'm particularly tired of is people telling me what I have to be not tired about. And um, and so uh, if I had my druthers, I probably would have just done the whole podcast about barbecue sauces if I could have. But I feel like I have a fiduciary obligation to edify and enlighten. And so um, we actually decided to talk about some substance as well. Uh, anyway, if you guys like what we're doing, if you have sympathy for my dyspepsia, um, or if you just um, tolerate me but really like the rest of my colleagues at the Dispatch, if you become a paid member of the community, that would be awesome. Uh, it means a lot to us. It helps us a lot in every single way possible. Um, and... Um, and I don't just mean in terms of like our business plan and all that. It is a real buoy to our spirits uh, because everybody's working really, really hard. And, um, uh, and it really means something to have the kind of support from people. So if you could promote the podcast, if you could promote the newsletters, if you could become a paid member of the community, it would mean um, a great deal to us. And we, we deeply appreciate it. And with that, I am out of here. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.